Friendship Rods. This is Liz. This is Devin. Devin, we're back, and I'm ready to jump right in and tell you about Skid Row, the theme of the season, and also the focus of this episode. Because we had to take a detour. We had to take a detour. A a detour and a pause. One to get Golden Spruce squared away, and one to investigate and illuminate the very interesting life of Henry Yesler. Yes! The tea kept spilling, because folks may or may not know, my mother is a Jack London scholar. So (laughs) I asked her about this, and she's like, oh, absolutely. Flora had an illegitimate (laughs) child that became Jack. And Flora, apparently, so here's the tea, here's the Jack London tea. tea. Uh, is that Flora was also a spiritualist, and she had, of course, a spirit guide who, like, communed with her. And I don't remember his name, but, you know, Barry, I have no idea. Sure. She had this guy who would talk to her, and apparently one time when Jack London was, like, a teenager, one of his friends came by and found him sitting on the porch step, like, on the stoop of their building, and he's like, what's going on, Jack? And he's like, oh, mom's in there with Barry. <laughs> Flora's just chatting it up with this ghost that she talks to. And Jack London is like, I'm so over it. So, so I'm over it. Go to Skagway. <laughs> <laughs> See I'm you not later. This. <laughs> he gave his mom the Alaska howdy. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one because. My first plan was that we would chop it up, that I would give you kind of a light intro of Skid Row, because I didn't think there was that much to say about it, and okay. then we were going to talk about your topic. I am. But the more I went, I it got to the point, Devin, where I had the Wikipedia for DuckTales open, and it was pertinent. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> well, There's quite a bit to unpack here. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but if I start to stumble into an area where you're like, no, I've got that under control, or you want to just chime in and help me with it, let me know. Because Fair. we're talking about the same handful of people. And I know for a fact, at least some of the people I'm talking about were known to the person you're talking about. <laughs> so who knows? Oh, Okay. We didn't get this far by planning. (laughs) Sure as sugar didn't. Absolutely (laughs) not. All right. Let's go back to very early Seattle. All right. We talked about it with Yesler. We talked about what this little tiny encampment was like. So New York Alki in 1852 is seven men, five women, and 12 children living in four houses. Mm-hmm. That's not a settlement. Like, that is no. a, a small traffic jam. Indeed. Or possibly, that is an unauthorized social gathering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's not a town. <laughs> <laughs> that is the maximum amount of people I want to hang out at any one time. But yep. I would not give it a zip code. <laughs> Because, in fairness, it's not really a great place to load ships. Mm-hmm. It's kind of stressful to to work with the sound. Mm-hmm. But, oh Very well, they so. were there. They had timber. They were going to do it. We've talked about Yesler, about the timber, about the industry that came with it, yes. and the changes that that wrought. And there's these other industries that also <laughs> influenced a lot of Seattle's growth. We're going to talk a little bit about those. All right. I should say my main reference here 
is a book called Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle by somebody named Murray Morgan. Yeah. Who, the original edition of this was written in the 1950s. So Murray was able to actually talk to some of these people. Some of these people were still alive who'd been around in the Boomtown days and the Gold Rush days. You know, this is in fairly recent memory. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right. We have Henry Yesler coming into Seattle to make his fortune in lumber because somebody told him they've got lumber up there. You know how to do this. That's where you should be. Mm -hmm. There was another guy who came out West wasn't able to make it panning gold in California and decided to try his luck up in the North. Okay. His name was John Pennell. And this is a similar origin story that Murray Morgan put in here. Probably some seaman from one of the lumber ships told him of the yearnings of Puget Sound males. So <laughs> what Yesler right. was told by a random sailor is they have a lot of timber up uh-huh. there. And what Pennell got told is they have a lot of horny dudes. <laughs> And both of them say, I shall make my fortune upon these horny dudes. (laughs) These horny dudes. I can provide. John Pennell says. At the end of the day, it's all about hardwood. I love it. You did it. You you found it and you nailed it. I love it. Good job. All of those were sex jokes that you just said. They were. All of those. You can't get out of double entendre mode once you're there. No. 1861, he gets... Out of the boat beside Yesler's mill. Oh. And Pennell is like, ah, I see. This is a town of bachelors. This is a town with an established payroll. And this is a town with no form of entertainment whatsoever. Yeah. Within a month of John arriving at Seattle, at the end of the logging road, there's... A pleasure palace, uh-huh. which I think is probably a very generous term for, you know, a box made of oh, rough boards, correct. right? Correct. Palace, yeah. generous. Pleasure, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Fleeting, but existent, I guess. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where <laughs> should actually... call it just a happy house, really? Yeah. A nice time neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> That just sounds like a really weird euphemism for a red light district. Yeah, it does. A nice time neighborhood. (laughs) Pennell puts his brothel out on land that didn't exist 10 years before. It's there because there is that much sawdust coming (gasps) out of Yesler's mill. Oh, dear. That they're actually filling in the tide flats with sawdust. Mm -hmm. It smells terrible. Mm -hmm. It's not that stable Mm -hmm. or pleasant, but it's cheap. Mm-hmm. And also, for Pennell's purposes, it's only a couple minutes walk away from the mill, and you can see it when you're coming into the harbor. So both of his major customer bases yeah. are going to be able to see this pleasure palace. Okay. Yeah, he named it the Illahi. Illahi in Chinook means homeland or earth, which is oh. such a earnest name it, for that establishment. Truly. I don't know how that came about. Picture... Old West Saloon. Okay. It was very that, you know, raw wood, big bar, upstairs rooms with upstairs girls, piano player. Oh, actually, he had a fiddler, a drummer, and an accordion player. That's which a full is, accompaniment. <laughs> that's what you want to hear when you're an accordion <laughs> player. You're right. Okay. Yes, an accordion player. God, I was in the Portland <laughs> airport. Sorry. I'm still fucking mad about this accordion player. 
I am not in a psychological frame of mind to handle accordion music when I'm in an airport. I'm very impressed. If people can play the accordion, it can be done well. Uh-huh. It's a very great instrument, but shut up. I'm at the airport. Shut up. No. But it was making some people very happy. And it certainly did give me something to think about and talk about while I was there. For sure. <laughs> I I don't need to think about or talk about anything, particularly accordion music, when I'm visiting a pleasure palace, however. No, accordion music to me is like, at most, drinking songs. Yeah. But not sexy. Although, no. when I think about Joan Holloway in Mad Men playing her little concertina, hmm. I'm seeing it, but I don't think these guys had Christina Hendricks curves. I don't think no. that was quite what they were bringing to the table. No. So at least one historian has argued that the Elahi was basically what got Seattle off the ground besides the lumber mill. Because for everyone living in Washington Territory, you now know where you're going to go if you need to get a certain form of entertainment. There's not other official setups okay. around, really. Like, there's, I'm sure, always going to be people offering that service, but this was, like, not you have to walk into town and try to find somebody right. and, like, approach people and maybe offend them or get arrested. This is yeah. like, no, it's that. It's for that. Yeah. It's here. Yeah. Are you coming over? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can, can we discuss very briefly, though, that they should have... 100% named this establishment the squeeze box. Oh, that's really good. You're welcome. Come on. That's the marketer you needed. Uh, yeah, hello. hello. I know uh, 150 years too late, but I am still available. <laughs> if we want to rebrand the Elahi, I'm very, very much willing to cut you a great rate. You are fixing problems just for the love of the game. Just for the love like, of the I'm game. Gonna, I'm going to freshen yeah. up your marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Thing, even though you are long dead. Yep. I'm the solution no one asked for. Even the people who weren't comfortable with Pennell and his girls, who were all native girls initially. Okay. Even those people didn't have it in them to take him on and get rid of him. And in part, it's because there's not that many people in the first place. <laughs> right? Like, who are you going to call? There's no police. There's no police. There's just a guy. There's not a mayor. That, like, law literally is just whatever you need it to be and can make stick. Yeah. So they also kind of accepted it as a necessary evil because when guys come into town, because they're pursuing the services at the Alahi, they're also going to buy supplies and they're also going to pay for liquor. And they're also, uh, who knows, they might stay in an actual hotel. Yeah. Got one going or rent a room or whatever. Yeah. You know, it brings money to town. Yeah. Now, other people took over the marketing for the Alahi as well, but not with as much skill and helpfulness as you brought. Of course. They called it the Madhouse. <sighs> and it was sometimes just called the Sawdust Pile or Down on the Sawdust. <laughs> <laughs> and the girls who worked there were Sawdust Women. All right. Which, as a phrase, really hovers between badass and depressing. Yeah. 
Because if I take it out of its context entirely, I'm like, ooh, what is a sawdust mm-hmm. woman? Mm-hmm. Like impervious or yeah. made of leftovers? I don't know what this is. Yeah. It's like night witches. Night like, witches, but, yes. You know, sawdust women. Okay. This guy was not the first person to notice that there were a lot of bachelors in Seattle, and he was not the last person to attempt to address it. You remember we've talked about one of these guys before, right? We've talked about... The more legitimate one. About Mr. Mercer and his Mr. bells. Mr. Mercer. Yeah. Mr. Mercer apparently was not entirely unaware of what was going on down on the sawdust, and part of the drive for him to get respectable women out here yeah. was that people were starting to, like, marry these sawdust uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were they were becoming a part of the community you can't have that no gosh uh, so mercer heads out does his thing we've told that story it was a mixed success it's not forrest gump i'm trying to think what the the equivalent is it's like Justice League or like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where you're like, look, you can't all be in this story. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, indeed, <laughs> under Henry Yesler's roof in Yesler's Hall, Sarah is in on this meeting with Mercer. And <laughs> just down the road is hanging out Pennell and his girls. Mm-hmm. Now, as we know, Mercer married one of the girls that he brought, Annie Stevens, and they moved to the Rocky Mountain area. And around the same time, Pennell moved away from Seattle as well. But it was just the beginning. The Skid Road had begun. This was now what it meant to be on the Skids, out on Skid Row. It Uh, was to be a sawdust woman. It was to be the kind of guy who's hanging out around these girls. Yeah. There's two historical episodes that I'm going to mention here, but not get deep into. Okay. So one is that the anti-Chinese sentiment in Seattle was difficult to describe in terms of how violent and how vicious it was. It comes up in Skid Road, but given that this was written in the 50s, I think there's probably been better treatments of it now. But essentially, it was exactly what you would expect, which is the railroads brought out a lot of Chinese workers. Yes. Some of the railroads went under. The whole country went into a depression in 1893. You know, the same thing that puts Ezra Meeker on the road. The same thing. We've seen this depression get a lot of people in our stories. And it puts a lot of people out of work. The white men's attitude toward these folks that could be paid less and worked harder goes from ha-ha to you have to get out of here or we're going to kill you. Yes. It's very scary and very unacceptable. And I guess I just didn't want to fast forward past it and ignore that this is also part of Seattle's history. Yes. But I don't have anything funny to say about it. Nope. Similarly, I have nothing funny to say about the fire, but they had one. Yeah, and big one. It, a big one. It took down tremendous amounts of seattle let me see mathematically i had something in here that Mm -hmm. explained it Mm -hmm. so the whole city went bonkers when the fire started there was actually one person who somebody saw running into a house with two torches so apparently somebody was just done with that house (laughs) on their own behalf or somebody else's and they burned it down All kinds of buildings get burned down. Yesler keeps his house by covering it in a hundred wet blankets. 
which is where did you get? Okay. Where did you get ninety eight uh, of those, Yesler? Well, he had the company store. I, I suppose he, so. I bet everybody who worked for him, he was like, "Come here, get a blanket and dunk it in the sound. We're going." <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, I want to check on my house. Yeah. No. Right. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, there are people who are like robbing each other. There's looting. It was a dry summer. Somebody knocks over some turpentine. There's an accident. About 2.40 p.m. is when this all kicks off. And it burns until 3 in the morning the next day. Because there's nothing left to burn. And it kicks off, if I recall, in a store down in Skid Row. Down in like the Denny Triangle Pioneer Square area of today. If I'm recalling this correctly. Started in a relatively respectable area, I think, but I mean, respectable was pretty relative for Seattle in the first place at the time. But yeah, it goes from the Pontius block into Denny block, goes along front, hits the liquor store, and the whiskey barrels start exploding. It is, uh, yeah, I, it's about five blocks from the Denny Triangle in South Lake Union. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, because they had that lead, they knocked down tremendous parts of Skid Row because they were trying to starve the oh, fire. yes. So they just went through all these little shacks and huts and everything and knocked it down. So even if the fire hadn't come through there, that was going to be gone. Yes. But it very much did. <sighs> it burned all the way through to the waterfront. It did 120 acres, 25 city blocks. Oh, my goodness. Burned clean, essentially. There's a couple interesting pictures where you can see, like, a really distinctive stone arch. Yeah. Or something like that. And everything else is just flat and gone. Yeah. Completely gone. There's militia in the streets. There's a saloon. I liked the story. A saloon had rolled a hundred barrels of whiskey into the bay, hoping to get them back later. <laughs> they recovered two. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you did. It's Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's oh, pretty man. ingenious. I wouldn't have thought to put my barrels in the water and been like, look, they're toast anyway, so maybe I'll get some back. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, either they're going to explode and make everything worse, or, I, I mean, I don't want to move a hundred of anything. No. I'm impressed, frankly. Yeah. That's pretty good. Now, it's still a boom town, and it's a bunch of guys who are real tough and a bunch of women who are not interviewed for history purposes. Mm -hmm. But the guys are just like, screw it. Whatever. It's fine. We'll be fine. We're going to pull together and we're going to rise like a phoenix. Just over and over. We're going to pull together. We're going to rise like a phoenix. Mm -hmm. So it burns. Let's see. What day of the week was this? There we go. Okay. So Thursday is when the fire starts. By Saturday... The businesses are advertising in the papers where their new locations are. Oh, my. They, they are set up in tents. They are ready to do business again. There's John Court, who's an Irishman from New York City, who's an entertainer. His standard theater burns down. Okay. He opens in a tent. And the straight man asks the comic, how's business? And the comic says... Intense. <laughs> That's pretty good. 
<laughs> Come to find out, the comic started the fire just yeah, so he could just use that line. <laughs> and he thought it was worth it. That's a pretty good one for 1889. You know, me up. that's great. Now, people did notice that they're like, oh, that place that's right near the heart of downtown and had all the people and businesses we like to pretend don't exist got burned down. Let's reclaim it. Let's okay. make something better than what it was. But, you know... The owners of the actual businesses didn't yeah. feel that way. No. They wanted to rebuild their businesses, too. Sure. As this puts it, when the first of the new brick stores opened north of Yesler Way four months after the fire, several brothels had been back in business for weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing that helps shape Seattle's population, because in a time in which the collapse of various railroads had led to a lot of guys being out of work, and then all the businesses burned down, putting everybody further out of work, it actually created jobs because they were building with brick. I see. All right. So when the fire starts, there's an estimated 31,000 people in Seattle. Less than a year later, there's 37,000. Oh my. Yeah. So many people in a year just because of the industry rebuilding creates. There was work and, you know, the brothels were still open. Well, There was a really funny comic, I guess. Uh, yeah, like, and apparently all it takes to have a brothel is a pile of sawdust and a guy who can play an accordion. So not a <laughs> difficult business to open, apparently. <laughs> well, if you've got an item of great scarcity... <laughs> Accordions are scarce for a reason. Exactly. Now we're going to talk about an interesting character who is another one of those gangsters that will charm me with audacity, but I want to emphasize I don't think is a good person. I don't think either of the gangsters I'm going to tell you about are good people. Yeah. But you got to follow a scoundrel sometimes to get to the best stories. Indeed. So let's talk about John Considine. Let's. Hmm. How to describe John Considine. John Considine was the cleanest living guy to ever make as much dirty money as he did. So mm-hmm. he made money from brothels, from liquor, gambling, drugs. He was organized crime, all this. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was a happily married, apparently monogamous guy who would go home to his wife and three kids with all his brothel money. He chewed gum. That was his vice. Wow. He would go into these saloons that he ran and these brothels and he would get water, ice water. Wow. And he chewed gum. He apparently by the end of his life was up to five sticks at a time, which I don't know what gum was like back then, but that sounds like a lot of gum. They had... All kinds of entertainment now going on in Seattle. Seattle becomes a boom town, and we're not even to the gold rush yet. But there's enough (sighs) guys there to make entertainment have a purpose. And you get everybody who you would expect, right? There are musicians, there's phrenologists, there's celebrities, there's temperance lecturers, there's probably people doing Chautauquas, circuses, whatever it may be. If you feel like coming up to the Northwest... There was not always a consistent audience because there wasn't always a a location, like an actual venue (laughs) available. Yes. But, 
you know, there was an audience there. The Great Eastern and Royal European Circus was in town in 1869. And the serious error that they made is they did not give free tickets to the Seattle Weekly Intelligencer. (laughs) And here's what the Weekly Intelligencer had to say about this poor circus. The concluding piece was the sickliest attempt at amusement we have ever seen brought before an intelligent audience. But we understand it was eclipsed on Friday evening when the last performance was given. That's so mean! (laughs) I know! I gotta assume this was the same guy. Dr. Dickerson, who it will be remembered lectured at Yesler's Hall one evening a few weeks ago, and on attempting a repetition the next evening failed to be so inspired, has made two attempts to lecture in Olympia and weakened on each occasion. The spirits under whose inspiration he holds forth would not vouchsafe their aid, and all attempts to rally them failed. Perhaps they were overproof. <laughs> Who is this? I love it. But, okay, I know there are different definitions of shade, and I think even in Paris is burning, you get two different versions, whether it's the very subtle, what I said is true but can be taken in a very insulting mm-hmm. way version, and then the just insulting people version. Yes. So those are the just insulting people version, but oh, let me give you a... They didn't technically say anything wrong, but oh my god, if anybody said this about a production I put on, I would leave earth (laughs) okay here we go a circus the daily pacific tribune has to say the performances were all good especially those of two or three of the horses (laughs) (laughs) they're like i want to specifically call out a couple of the horses (laughs) really bring the fire real standout in the circus Yeah. So Yesler addresses the whole lack of a venue thing. But unfortunately, he actually has to buy planed lumber from a different mill because he doesn't have a planer. Oh. Yeah. And he builds a one-story 30 by 100 foot hall that for about a decade was the only place that you would go if you were going to bring any kind of show to town. Nice. He got like $60 a month in rentals. It's the only game in town, man. That was Henry Yesler's game, is to be the only game in yes. town. Yes. Apparently not for planed lumber. Not for planed lumber, no. Mm. Oh, wait, one more intelligencer, just because it's so vicious. Okay, Seattle Brass Band. The musicians have erected a comfortable band house adjoining Wyckoff's livery stable. We learn it is the intention of the band to hire a competent teacher shortly. <gasps> So now we have a place where we can put on shows. And again, all I can see is Deadwood or possibly the Three Amigos or something similar. Or I'm picturing like there's a part in Showboat where something like this goes down. I'm like, those guys were drunk on pink gin. They had not seen anybody. Oh my, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine what the audiences were like for this kind of stuff. Not to mention the quality of who's willing to haul themselves up to Seattle. Potentially yes. not 
where the most well-known performers are going to want to be. Yes. So they're doing all the usual ones, right? They're doing Gilded Age, they're doing Taming of the Shrew and other Shakespeare. They're doing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. you got to do Uncle Tom's Cabin when it's the 19th century, but I had not heard this. So Uncle Tom's Cabin in early days in Seattle reappeared frequently because it was the most popular thing of all time. Yeah. Once it appeared as an operetta, once no. it appeared with everybody in it, played by people of color, which is intriguing. And once with a double cast, including two little Evas who went to heaven simultaneously <laughs> and two sets of bloodhounds. <laughs> and I can't even picture what that would have been like. I'm like, at the same time? At different ends of the building? Why? Yeah. Why? Did they stand next to each other? Were you supposed to watch them both at the same time? I have so many questions. <laughs> Not all of it went great, but what they seemed to strike gold with, no pun intended, mm -hmm. was plays that were about the stuff that the guys living there liked. So, Captain Jack or A Life on the Border. Okay. Here's what the dispatch has to say about that. It is of the dime novel melodrama description and consisted of four abductions, one attempted poisoning, two bowie knife combats, <laughs> one chloroforming, and 24 homicides. And from the beginning to the end, there was a running fire of revolvers till persons on the outside supposed Chinese New Year had broken loose again. Verily, it must be seen to be appreciated. Like, I want to see that so I want to see that I too. I want to see Captain Jack. Yeah. I want to see yep. the four abductions. Yep. And the 24 homicides. Talk about a summer In blockbuster. Amazing! Know, this show has everything. This abductions, chloroform, <laughs> it's Bowie knife fights. It sounds like your <laughs> seven-year-old kid brother and his best friend are putting on a play, mm -hmm. and no, no one let them script it beforehand. So they're just and another abduction and yet another knife yeah. fight. They're like I don't know how to get out of this. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Directed yeah. by it's Michael like Scott from The Office. This is the great value version. <laughs> Of Princess Bride. Of Princess Bride. Like sword fights. Beautifulest ladies. Yes. <laughs> Abductions. Chlor. Yes. It has that. <clears throat> We've got performers coming in and including Seattle as a stop on the tour. One type of performance that was not allowed in Seattle was boxing. It was barred oh. by law. And only if you were a private club member could you legally spar with another private club <sighs> Okay. Now, good news. As soon as you showed up in Seattle, if you were interested in doing that, you could join a club. <laughs> and they would put you in the club. And then it was all between club men and nothing to worry about perfectly legal. <laughs> now, the other way they got around this cracks me up so much. They would have a play, and in the lead role, they would cast... A boxer. Oh, Lord. And in the play, in the final act, some local boxer would come up, and the final act of the play would be a boxing match. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's part of the play. It's part of the play, it's guys. <laughs> it's a choose your own yeah. adventure. We have two conclusions based upon which one of them wins. Yeah, are we going to put the local guy over, or... Yeah, I mean, the, John L. Sullivan, Jim Corbett, like, Gentleman Jim Corbett did this. Oh, my he, gosh. He, here's an ad. Okay. 
Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons, which Ruby Bob is such a good first name. Very much. Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons comes to town in a play called The Honest Blacksmith, which I'm sure was a great work. Oh, yeah. See Fitz, the ad says, spar three rounds, make a horseshoe, punch the bag, <laughs> shoe a horse, sing a funny song. <laughs> I'm like, please, I would love to see one man on stage spar three rounds, make a horseshoe, punch the bag, shoe a horse, and sing a funny song. A renaissance man, indeed. That's entertainment. (laughs) God. Yeah. (laughs) When when they asked that young child what his dream job was... The answer he gave. All of them. All of them. <laughs> yep. Eventually they got some better performers. Like, uh, let's see, Ethel Barrymore came uh-huh. through. Did she? Am I making that up? No. I'm trying to say Maurice Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore came through. They had W.C. Fields and Sarah Bernhardt. Oh, my. They before the turn of the century, actually showed up to Seattle. But it was, from what I gathered, more of a, I feel like going there anyway and I'll pay for it with this, than it was a, I'm going to make good money doing this. All right. Now, some folks that did go there intentionally to make their money from the people of Seattle were people who did the other kind of theater. Uh-huh. My kind of theater. Such as, for instance... The Adamless Eden Company. <laughs> All Eves. All Eves. All Eves. All Eves. All it is is half-naked women. That's all the show <laughs> is. And they would put some concepts around it, and I'm sure there would be, like, costumes and sets. Sure. But the point of it sure. is look at these naked sure. women. Sure, yeah, in much the say that modern pornography has concepts, yeah. this <laughs> had, yeah, plots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All Eve. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That kind of entertainment was available on the Skid Road. The most typical place where you would see this is at what was called a box house. So a box house is a saloon with a theater Mm -hmm. attached. And again, kind of picture the old-timey, Old West saloon, but we're talking about in a basement, usually. Yeah. uh, Because they're nighttime establishments, you know, it's like a nightclub. Yeah. Others were built on pilings over the Elliott Bay Tide Flats, an arrangement that made easy the disposal of boisterous guests. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dropped through trapdoors. <laughs> you, know you are done. You're done. <laughs> think... You're going to the mud town now. Yeah, right. You can't act right. <laughs> you can't act right. <laughs> Don't drink and dive. <laughs> Wait, we're just going to throw you anyway. <laughs> that was beautiful. I'm having a hard time finding a comprehensive, like, layout of this, but from the pictures I've seen in the descriptions, it's kind of like an old theater. Almost, I want to say, like, if I picture the fox and you sort of, like, squeeze it in and make it mm-hmm. narrow. Oh, oh, the um the theater that they have in Tombstone. Picture that theater. Yeah, all right. And, you know, so there's boxes. And in the box house... It was less about getting a box so that you could see the show and more about you would go to the box when it was time for a private show. It was the champagne room. Champagne, And they had tons of them. Tons (laughs) of these boxes 
which were not always like that private. It was sometimes like, okay, we've, you know, it's horse stalls yes. and we've got curtains over them. Yes. If you're lucky, and, we've got curtains over them. Yeah. Yeah. I could not figure out specifically whether it was more typical to just use them for sex or whether, at least in one case, in where was this? Uh, the Theater Comique, which was on Washington Street. Mm-hmm. In there, the women would stand in the boxes, like in the red light district oh, okay. in Amsterdam yeah. or something, in the windows. Basically, like, if the door's open and I'm here, we're open for business. Yeah. If it's closed, don't come and knock it, yeah. you know? Now, the king of the box houses in Seattle is John Considine. This oh. devout Roman Catholic gum-chewing yeah. family man drinking his water. He... Was a big talker. He was a big guy. Okay. And he was a big personality. And he had a big temper. Okay. He did not gamble. He did not drink. He did not go with women besides his wife. He was at an incredible advantage, apparently, based on those facts. He did not get high on his own supply. Indeed. Period. Yeah. And within two years of arriving in Seattle, he was the manager of the People's Theater. Okay. Now, these theaters, they were all called theater things, right? Yeah. They would admit you for a fee, not very much. They make their money from either selling you liquor, just like a strip club today, or with the girls who would do their little number and then go circulate and, you know, get the guys to come up to the bar, get the, (laughs) for every drink that they got from the guy, they would get a metal tag that they could redeem in cash later. Every time, you know, they bought a round of whiskey, which for him was whiskey and for her was iced tea. Yeah. Yeah. uh, They would get a little tag. Yeah. And then if you wanted to, as this author puts it, peddle more personal wares, the management did not object. And I'm sure there was a cut that was taken. Sure. Now, Constantine actually didn't like that layout because he felt like it kind of demeaned the theater part. So oh. he was the first person in Seattle who split it up okay. and said, no, we're actually going to have actresses on the stage. And then if you are a box hustler, yeah. don't worry about your curtain time. Like, don't <laughs> worry about that. Yeah. You do that and she's going to do this. Yeah. I'm sure the actresses were doing quite interesting stuff as well. I'm positive. He would start to clear $2,000 a month. Oh, my goodness. Right before the Depression. Oh, my goodness. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Things went bad in Skid Row when that 1893 Depression hit, right? Yeah. So there's less money to go around. The people who are around are more stressed out. The palace, for instance, didn't pay its employees for a couple months. So they broke into the wine room and for 48 hours... (laughs) Drank as much as they could to get their money back. <laughs> this is like my favorite photo on the internet of the possum that broke into a bakery in Australia. Yes! <laughs> and ate all the donuts. Ate all the donuts and they just found it going, <laughs> with his little hand on his little belly. <laughs> oh, he got his man and so did those workers. <laughs> there are... Fights, there are tensions. Essentially, things have gotten too rowdy, and Seattle has gotten too grown up to put up with this utter anarchy. Now, they pass a law to deal with box houses, and the most efficient way 
to starve a business like that is not banning a form of nudity or whatever. It's that you forbid the sale of liquor. Mm -hmm. And it became illegal to sell liquor in theaters in Seattle. I see. Okay. Yeah. Considine left. He went to Spokane because they didn't have that issue. Yeah. He put in three years over here in Spokane. I'm not sure what was going on. I haven't looked into it much. This was a Seattle research dive. Yes. But basically, the Spokane City Council passed an ordinance that banned women working in box houses. <laughs> so Constantine apparently was just the legal test case guy who would show up and be like, guess what you don't want happening, yeah. <laughs> but don't have a law yeah, Right? How are you going to stop me yep. this time? <laughs> So he's thinking about Idaho. He's not sure, but he decides to go back to Seattle. The People's Theater has had no success without him. It's been, you know, people are sleeping in there because they need to. It's full of filth. There's rats. It's been terrible. But don't worry, because Seattle is not going to stay broke for long, because it is time for the Klondike Gold Rush. It is indeed time for the Klondike Gold Rush. Before I get into that, I will tell you about our sponsor and tell the folks listening about Jesse. Jesse sells land on Instagram or Washington State land for sale. You've heard about Jesse before. You've heard about her very interesting properties. Liz, I have the house for us. In Seattle, there's a place called Discovery Park. It's over in the Magnolia neighborhood. My favorite, favorite park in all of Seattle. Okay. And they have something called Officer's oh, Row. That's haunted, isn't it? There in Discovery Park, there's Fort Lawton. Oh, the whole place is haunted as heck. If we have a spare two and a quarter million dollars, we have the rare opportunity to own a piece of Seattle history. This is the first ever resale on Officer's Row in the homes at Fort Lawton. We can own a home called The Laura. The Laura? The Laura. It was built in 1900. It is a giant yellow Victorian wraparound porch, three levels in a basement. The Newell Post is original. There is a brand new redone kitchen, which I'm great with because I really like a kitchen to be something I can keep clean and historic kitchens I usually can't. But in the <laughs> dining room, it has like the built-in oak sideboard. What's the address? I want to look at this. 4002 Washington Avenue West. Oh, look how beautiful. beautiful. Somebody has redone this house marvelously. Incredible. Incredible. Let's buy it. I cannot believe the view. Oh, the view is marvelous, isn't it? And it looks to me like the Laura is perhaps a duplex. So I could buy one half, you could buy the other (gasps) half. Yeah. We We could... Door, you know, wall in between. Oh, yeah. I got so excited. Yeah. I forgot words. Yeah, no words are needed, no, words. my friend. We would have a series of complicated knocks that we do on the connecting wall. Let me tell you a true story, which is that the other night we were playing Mario Party and we heard what we thought were knocks. Like we paused. We're like, what's like somebody knocking? It's a little 
It's weird. Okay. I don't know why people come to my door at all. No, what we realize what we're hearing is Scrappy had gone to bed in Lid's room, like he does, because he, he's baby, baby, and he sleeps on a pillow in her room, and he goes up to bed very early sometimes because he's an old man and he gets tired. And he was having a dream that was so good that his big chunk tail was going foom, 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 oh. foom. On the floor of her bedroom, which was directly above our oh. heads. It went on and off for like 20 minutes. Just thump, 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 thump. Because he's having such dang good old time in his dreams. But it was so funny every time. What I'm like, oh, you just. That's so uh, precious. He was so strange. Dreaming about the fact that he got put into the best family where the little girl <laughs> tucks him in bed at night with yep. his own blanket and pillow. He gets very, very spoiled. He has a very strange life. He's a good dog, but he's a weird dog. Like In what way is he weird? He walks backward into rooms <laughs> and it's, we think it's something to do with he's not, he, he mostly does it when he's transitioning from the hardwood into the carpet. Okay. So we think it's something about, like, he doesn't feel safe when his feet are on different yeah. surfaces. But what it means is that he will come down, see us in the living room, decide he wants to see us, and turn around. Oh and then back his pit bull bow legs yeah. toward us carefully every time. And oh. all I do is go, here comes a special boy. Here comes a special boy yeah. the whole time. Because that entertains me greatly. He's a, I love him. He's a weird dog. Dog is a rear wheel drive creature. Yeah. And so he has to make Absolutely. sure that those yeah, he, have he's, traction. He's the car that you got from your cousin that only runs. <laughs> the car who all raised your car hand from right now signals. if you've seen smoke signals. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Only goes in reverse. He can go forward. But when it comes to certain situations, he needs to go backward. And also in any crisis, he will start to go backward to the point <sighs> where he panicked about, I think it was like the dishwasher guy, and decided he had to go backward. I was behind him. That wasn't a problem. And he backed fully through my legs. Oh my goodness. As I stood there and I was just like, you're, oh my what goodness. were we doing there? Yeah. Did anybody else see this? Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Circus dog. Anyway, that that was supposed to be a sponsor. Yeah, it was supposed to be. Did not end up being. Jesse sells land on Instagram if you want to see that, or you can go to WashingtonStateLandForSale.com. I think it's worth it just to see the outside of this building. Real estate blows my mind. Yeah. Just fully blows my mind. If you're listening to this and you're like, yes, I need that house, Godspeed, go get that house. <gasps> and if you're listening to this and you're like, I just want to see it, just go see it. Life's too short. Like, just go go load up that website and look at this cool Victorian that's, like, overlooking the water. And just fantasize for a minute. I I love doing that. Don't quit your daydream, kids. Oh, that was uplifting. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jesse. We'll Thank get back you, to Jessie. the story now. I'm learning. Okay. The Klondike Gold Rush hits and changes Seattle. Yeah. Seattle was referred to as the only city that ever annexed a state or a territory <laughs> because Alaska was so much a part of Seattle that it shaped what Seattle became, sure. right? And this author points out, you know, there's totem poles. There's yeah. gear for winter weather. There's all kinds of things that are not Seattle, 
or from people in Seattle. Yeah. They're for Alaska. Yeah. But it was such a linked, connected place, even though they were geographically far apart in experience terms, they were pretty close. Yeah. This means that everybody is ready to engage in the great Western tradition of mining the miners. Mm-hmm. More box houses open. There's gold miners. There's gamblers. Barkers yelling about, like, here's what we have in our box house. We've got, let's see, what was this one that they described? It was an intriguing act. <laughs> there was one where, like, a, it, it, it explained it in a very confusing way. I couldn't understand what the act was supposed to be be i think just because it was a poorly written sentence all right oh yeah okay here we go at the people's theater this was when considine didn't own it okay see lady osmina change clothes in total darkness in a lion cage what how do i see that yeah exactly i'm like in total darkness in a lion cage yeah how do i yeah how do i see it why is she in the cage is a lion involved or is just a lion cage she Truly. changes clothes to what? What part? Like, what do I get to see? Exactly. For my 50 cents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to know. I need to know. It better at least be a lion. Yeah. If, what if she changes into a lion? <laughs> I, that would be a really good trick. If it was like a quick change artist. Yeah. Where she twirls around and there's just a lion. Boom. Boom. Magic. I've got some city mm. founders in Spokane, Washington who have a zoo <laughs> they would like to talk to you about. Yes. <laughs> I looked at a postcard the other day of the Manitou bear yes. face when they had the zoo. Did I send you the picture? I almost bought one on in on eBay. You don't have like it's public domain now. You can get it okay. off the library and print your own. But yeah, the one where the bear is just fully over yep. the fence. Yep. It's just on a post that is yep. above the level of the fence. Yep. And I know bears aren't like known for jumping. No. But they can jump. Oh, this is such an apparatus that the bear could lose its footing and accidentally tumble <laughs> to yep. the crowd outside yeah, the fence. Like, no, I'm not an expert in zoos, <laughs> but I do know the animals go on the inside, and that seems to have been something typically. they were really shaking on. Typically, they were really shaky on yeah. in Spokane. Yeah, no, it's a reverse zoo. Day. We just we <laughs> the cages the are for the zoo. people. And they just walk through the wild while wearing a cage. (laughs) That's how I would want to do Jurassic Park. Amazing. (laughs) That should have worked with those those balls that they roll around in Jurassic World. But, you know, things went out of control. Yeah. Again at that park. (laughs) So (sighs) surprising. And they spared no expense, right? Uh, Like. mm All right. Mm. Another way that you can attract people to your business if you are a party good time place uh-huh. is not just yelling about the amazing girls you have, no. but you can have the band play. <laughs> so fucking here accordion. is the fucking accordion goes and you're like, mm, I'm going to go to the other one. Uh-huh. <laughs> so here's a report from July 30th, 1899. So about eight o'clock in the evening. The players from one brass band on the west side of the avenue come out start to play. On the other side, there's a guy with, let's see, a violin, a harp, and a clarinet. They come out, and they start singing. A totally different tune. Yeah. A totally different thing. They're selling their thing. And they are going back and forth, unsure how this is going to resolve, when suddenly... There is the blare of brass because the Salvation Army Band is here. 
and they march up Yesler, playing like wild, to <laughs> chase away the other band. It's like bring it on, but with band mm-hmm. camp. Yep. And <laughs> these guys are like, okay, they're done. They're, I'm, I'll be back later. I'm going to go get a beer and come back. Yeah. But just the image of... I, I'm picturing it. I apparently have no context for like large groups of people anymore because I'm like I'm picturing it like Universal Fright Nights. For some reason, that's like what jumped into my head. God. I think this is the last time I've seen a video of somebody in a crowd outside. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was you know it was Bourbon Street. Yes. It was that energy. Yes. So there are people standing in every corner, and also these bands competing with each other. And then into the middle of it, the Salvation Army shows up. Salvation. Fantastic. Oh. One of the reasons why Considine was not just a gangster, but was a very influential person, is that the largest chunk of votes in Seattle were in the district that encompassed Skid Row. Okay. So for him to have influence over those votes was a big deal. Yes. He started to class up. He started to dress up a little more nicely. He got his brother out there, who was kind of his bodyguard. He started a a gym for some reason, but he also bought like a saloon, a gambling hall. He invested in real estate. He also gets, as this author describes it, caught in the political crossfire between two rival papers. There's a couple of people to track here. Okay. So we've got Considine down. We know who this is. There is a mayor named Tom Humes. Honest Tom Humes. All right. Okay, so here's how Humes became mayor. Is that they had a mayor who went to go participate in the gold rush. (laughs) Specifically, he was going to take hardware north and and sell it to the prospectors. And so... He's like, can I have a leave of absence? And they say, yeah, sure, you can have a leave of absence from being the mayor. <laughs> yeah, the, so you to have Alaska. a job. <laughs> and what he leaves behind is a note that says, if I can't get back, consider this my resignation. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't. So, yeah. sir, they, you never, you never planned on coming back, did no, you? No, you just wanted to leave your options open on the off chance. Yeah. But they go, okay, they elect Humes. And the great debate in Seattle, as in Portland, as in every town, is, is it an open town or a closed town? Meaning, is it one where you can get away with everything if you know the right people and grease the right palms? Or are we a law and order place? Okay. And for Seattle in this era, law and order is barely, barely an option, really. (laughs) But... (laughs) Not even a suggestion. No, but there was... A divide in terms of how people thought about what Seattle should be. Should it be a respectable place or should it be a West Coast port town? Yeah. Yeah. Now, there is a conflict between Humes and a man named John L. Wilson, who came from Spokane. He owned the Post-Intelligencer. I see. You've heard of the Intelligencer. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's still around, right? Still going. Yeah. Well, it was owned by Jim Hill, as they describe him, the genius of the Great Northern. 
railroad money. What are the ways that you make your money in the North Railroad? You got yeah. your lumber, you got your mines, you got your mining the miners. Yeah. And John Wilson lost his seat in Spokane and he wants to he wants to go be like a guy who controls the politicians, not the politician. I see. Yeah. And behind the power or whatever. Yeah. He wants to be in charge of Seattle but not have the actual title. Yeah. So he has it out for Humes, and he has his own candidate that he wants to get elected, but Humes succeeds. He gets okay. reelected, and this guy's candidate does not. And so he goes, all right, well, I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to destroy you, of course. <laughs> and he decides to go after Humes for being corrupt. Okay. Who, fair, but it's also sure. one of those, like, now you're objecting to yeah, this right. guy specifically? Okay. Right. But he's got a newspaper to talk through. So he gets to I, yes. draw everybody's attention to this corruption. And Hume says, oh, well, chief of police, I will accept your resignation. And the chief of police is like, oh, uh, okay. Got the <laughs> message on that one. <laughs> I guess I'm ready to change careers. I guess I'm moving on. I'm going to go see what's going on in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> so he needs a new chief of police, and he gets a guy named William Meredith. Now, Meredith is from D.C. He came out to Seattle and initially worked for the police force. Then he quit to work for John Considine. Then uh. he quit again and went back to work. As the police. So this guy is dancing back and forth over the deadline anyway. Yeah. And he has beef with Considine and vice versa. Because from what we can gather, he took protection money and then still arrested this pickpocket. <laughs> who was a friend of Considine's. Okay. Even in an open town, you don't get to do that. No. And Meredith gets transferred to a clerk's job, for which he blames uh -huh. Considine, who, you know, is pretty influential. But now he's chief of police. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and they start to enforce the law about using women in box houses to hustle drinks, which they put on the books at some point and never enforce. They start to enforce it only against him. Yes. And the newspaper is still going after these box houses and oh against goodness. Considine and against Humes. And they go against Meredith, too, the chief of police. Oh, my goodness. he's also corrupt. He's just not <laughs> friends with the other corrupt people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the city council says, we have to figure out what is going on when you're accusing the mayor of this and you're accusing the chief of police of this. We're going to have an investigation. Okay. A private investigation. I see. And the newspapers are like, there is no meaningful private investigation into this. No. This is just going to be Considine's people doing exactly what they've been put there to do. Right, right. Who can pay mm -hmm. you more for the outcome they desire? Yeah. Now, don't worry. Everybody's leaking everything to the paper anyway. <laughs> and they start to slander each other. And what Meredith says he takes a very wild approach, is that he says that 
Considine got a 17-year-old contortionist pregnant. Her name is Mamie Jenkins. And that she needed an operation, which was paid for by Considine. And then he sends one of the police officers that he's in charge of to go to Considine and say, if you keep selling drinks, we're going to arrest you. And what Considine says to the police officer who shows up is, you go back and tell that little son of a bitch that I'll run my business. If they want me for anything at the police station, they can send for me. Oh my god, I love him. So what the council says is, you gotta get rid of this chief of police. Because apparently that was like ceremonially the person that you got rid of and never addressed what was going on with the mayor. Yeah, there's your fall guy. Let me bring in this one other character, Detective Wappenstein. That's a fake name. Sounds like it, right? He was also on the take, and he's implicated in this big investigation. And Mayor Humes is, you know, shocked, shocked. Oh, yes. Finding out that there's shady stuff going on in his Seattle. Indeed. And he sends the note to Meredith, just like he did to the other guy, that I will accept your resignation now. And Meredith tells a friend of his to go buy a shotgun. This is about to get a little intense. Somebody's going to die, I'm afraid. This is the West. And Meredith writes an angry letter to Mm -hmm. Hume, not a polite letter. And he gets his shotgun and he says, I'm going to go get my man. I should mention that basically everybody who was interviewed about the Mamie thing said no. She had an operation because she injured herself being a contortionist. (laughs) Well, yes. That is her job. That's how she does her. I mean, would I believe it? Yeah, of course, that kind of stuff happened all the time. But also people got injured for other reasons. Sure. But those facts, you know, I don't know if they're facts or air quote facts, had come out at this point and they get leaked and Meredith hears about them and he says, I've already lost my job. And now this. He goes looking for Considine. They're walking along Yesler Way. Considine is with his brother and Meredith is just roaming with a gun. So somebody actually runs up to John Considine and is like, get a gun. Meredith is after you. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. So they go play pool. And like you do. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is very, this happened to the Earp brothers. Like, what the hell? You don't go play pool. Considine and Earp actually faced off because Earp tried to open a saloon in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> John is feeling a little bit off. His throat is sore, but he's got a gun with him. He's going to go to the drugstore. Okay. Meredith is looking for him. He's got several weapons with him. (laughs) And he runs into a real estate agent and he says, have you seen the Considine boys? And the guy's like, no, are they friends of yours? And he says, the town isn't big enough to hold us both. Classic. Was that already a classic? Yeah, was it? Did you make that up? Was that where that comes from? Yeah, is that? Did you? come up with that and yeah get yeah. credit yeah yeah now i will somewhat fast forward over the gunfight because i have very oh. bad spatial skills and so i'm not going to be like then so and so ducks behind the counter so and so fires the gun it's shotgun right. da, 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 da. what you need to know is in what's essentially a drugstore with like a soda counter meredith yeah. catches up with john and his brother tom he shoots at John. He misses because he's too close with a shot. <laughs> Pellets spread out. And this one just goes past his shoulder. Which is a startling leaves. opening move, even if you don't hit the guy. Yeah, but it just mm-hmm. leaves him. 
a man-shaped pellet outline in the wall <laughs> behind him. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what Considine does, because he's a brawler, is he basically tackles Meredith. Because Meredith fires the shotgun a couple other times, and he is going for the revolver. And Considine basically just gets in so close that Meredith can't get the gun on him. Yeah. Pushes him to the front of the store. His brother snaps out of it, grabs the gun from Meredith, and starts hitting him with it. (laughs) Yeah. And that is how you turn a range weapon into a melee weapon. (laughs) Well, yeah. Everything is stressful. A lot of people are crowding into the drugstore because you gotta. You know, you hear shots oh. and you're like, ooh, let's go yes. see what that's about. Yeah, and this so, is cheaper than going to a box house. Yeah, it's cheaper than watching a play where a boxer boxes somebody at the end. <laughs> now, Tom, the brother, has Meredith's weapon, but he's pointing it not at Meredith, but at all the people who've come to see, saying, oh, Lord. I quote, get back, you sons of bitches. <laughs> Tom, Tom, one enemy at a time, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I don't care how fancy John was with his chewing gum and everything. These guys were gangsters and brawlers. Like this, yes. this was their mode. He's keeping these guys away from John and Meredith. John breaks away from Meredith, pulls out his gun, and kills Meredith. Wow. Now this becomes a whole trial because the question is: Was it premeditated? That John killed Meredith. The argument essentially is, was it self-defense? Or did he take a guy who was completely incapacitated by having his skull cracked and just execute him? I see. He was found not guilty. Okay, he was acquitted. Yeah, he was acquitted. Considine is trying to become more respectable. He starts to cut off the connections south of Yesler Way. He starts donating to charities. He starts joining clubs that aren't the, like, private scandalous ones. Yeah. He changes his business to be a Nickelodeon's. Oh, yeah. At that time, that was both short movies and also live acts. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's still the theater business. It's still show business. Yes. This is where he meets Pericles Pantages. (laughs) <laughs> now, I know you ran into this guy when you were Also known as kid. Alexander Pantages. Also known as Alexander, yeah. He's a character, but he's also a guy who did some pretty reprehensible stuff, so I reviewed my options and decided I'm not going to go hard on some of his goofier stories, but he was very much living that life of just show up out west and fake it till you make it. Yes. And have everything work out. And yes. it kind of did. <laughs> it did until it didn't for it did our boy Alexander. Yeah. Now, the one thing that does crack me up that I will share, in Seattle, he opened the Crystal Theater, and instead of charging people a ton of money, he was like, I'm just going to charge them low, like 10 cents, but they're going to line up to get in because yes. I'm only charging 10 cents. And yeah. in those days, you would just pay 10 cents and hang out until you were done watching. It would just yeah. be on a loop of the same acts over and over. Yeah. But because he was trying to churn people through really fast, he would speed everything up. So if the vaudeville act was normally 20 minutes, it would have to cut down to 10. 
And apparently, and I quote, the moving picture streaked across the screen so fast you could hardly recognize the scene. I, this is why everybody looks so sped up in old-timey film. Yeah, he's trying to turn the seats over. He's trying to get folks in. All right. Now, Pantages connects to Considine. First, they're rivals, right? They're they're in the yes. same business. Pantages is everything that Considine does not want people to remember that he is, yes. right? This not upper class guy, not respectable guy. They are in conflict, but Pantages is the successful one, right? Like that's yes. the theater circuit that we talk about. Yes. Now, Pantages ends up with the strongest vaudeville circuit mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. After Considine doesn't want to be in that business anymore, they actually become friends. So he uh. moves down to Hollywood. They hit it off. And Pantages' daughter, Carmen, marries Considine's son, John Jr. Mm. Their families right. marry together. Which... I didn't recognize the name Considine, but I want you to picture this guy, right? This guy who showed up and built, well, he wasn't Pinnell. He didn't, like, build that box, but he was the, you know, I'm running this town. I have these brothels. Old West guy. Okay. His grandson was in a sitcom in the 60s called My Three Sons. Shut up. Yeah, we have John Considine. He has two sons. One is Bob. Bob writes a couple things, like 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. And then the other son, John Jr., is a movie producer for MGM, including stuff like Boys Town. John also produces Putting on the Ritz. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, they're doing this with money that they got from Sawdust Girls Giving five cent handy jays to uh-huh. guys going up to the Yukon. I don't know what the going rate was, but the oh fact that he goes God. from this to Hollywood. Yeah. And then John Jr.'s sons get into acting. And that's where you get Tim, who's in, let's see, The Fugitive. He's in oh my goodness. Um, Patton. He is in My Three Sons. He was in The Shaggy Dog, that Disney movie. Yeah. Yeah. The grandson of this terrifying oh my Wild West God. gangster is making sitcoms with Fred yeah. McMurray. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, sir. Your grandfather killed a rival in a soda shop and, mm-hmm. as Liz pointed out, built his fortunes on nickel handy jays <laughs> so that you could star in a Disney straight-to-TV movie. It's wild. Absolutely wild. wild. I'm not going to unpack Pantages and Klondike Kate and all that, but that's the other half of these guys' ancestry. Yeah. Is this guy, this, I'm going to play my movies double speed at the Nickelodeon. Oh. Get the butts through the seats. Butts through the seats, churn them out, make your 10 cents with the next guy coming through. Both these guys came to Skid Road and made their fortunes on it and then went on to much bigger things. And... God, what what a place and what a time. Oh, indeed. Spoiler alert, they never reclaimed Skid Row for moral uprightness and order or yeah. whatever the fantasy was. Yeah. That area never 
never became prim and proper Mm -mm. and honestly good. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad you're not getting into more detail about Pantages and his wife, Klondike Kate, because those are the subject of my next episode. I am so psyched for it. That's all I have to say about Skid Row for now, but you know we're staying on the theme and the topic, so who knows where it's going to go next other than wherever Devin's going to take us, which I'm excited for. As you should be. You know where to find us in terms of podcatchers of choice. You can find our social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at OuijaBroads.com. I encourage you again to go check out the Ouija and Broads game, Mm -hmm. which I really hope to get to play at some point, but it's there. It's free. It's very fun. You can also find us at patreon.com slash Ouija Broads, where we will put up uncut episodes and little warm-ups that we do. Until we get to hear the story of Klondike Kate, which I'm so excited for, I'm going to be doing exactly what I hope you all will be doing, which is to live weird. To die weird. And stay weird. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Oh my god, I did it again. Such a long episode!